Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Um, Today we have Paola Bonifazio, who is an associate professor and chair of the Department of French and Italian at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, She received her PhD in Italian studies from New York University in 2008 and her master's in Italian and film studies from the University of Pittsburgh in 2003. In 2011, she was the NEH Andrew Mellon Rome Prize Fellow at the American Academy in Rome. Her research interests focus on film and media theory and history, cultural studies, gender studies, and feminist and post-feminist theories. Her first book, Schooling in Modernity, The Politics of Sponsored Films in Postwar Italy, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2014, um, explores short film productions sponsored by state and non-state agencies to promote modernization and industry and to govern the Italian people's conduct. A very interesting book, that too. But today we will be discussing her second book, The Photo Romance, A Feminist Reading of Popular Culture, which has been just published by the MIT Press um, this year, 2020. Uh, In this book, she examines the convergence culture of Italian media as photo romance magazines disperse their content across multiple formats, narrative conventions, editorial, and business strategies and platforms. I also want to say that Paola is an associate editor of Gender Sexuality Italy, a peer-reviewed academic journal on gendered identities, discourses, and practices in the Italian context. And I had the pleasure to have her as a colleague there, as as an associate associate editor. Um, And uh, so I'm, I'm really very happy to have you here today, Paola. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Um, so the photo romance, a feminist reading of popular culture, uh, this title is really very interesting. Um, and I will 
I, I read it with a lot of uh, um, pleasure, interest, um, kind of guilt, and uh, and even regret. But I will I will explain later um, because I have a lot of questions to ask you. Um, but first of all, there are you know many different words that in this title uh perspectives and contexts which um are really considered usually different uh if not antagonistic uh photo romance feminism and popular culture in general so let's start from the first term the photo romance which is the object of study of your book um so as you explain in the book the photo romance is an italian born cultural product then exported in the rest of the world some of our listeners um may find it a bit it's a bit difficult to identify this product, this genre, or this medium, as we want to call it. Um, so can you explain what a photo romance is and give our listeners some historical context? Um, I am particularly interested in its being a transmedial cultural product. So can you explain this? The photo romance is um, a type of comics that uses photographs instead of drawings. And as you said, it was born um, in Italy in the late 1940s, and then it was exported abroad uh, pretty quickly and became pretty quickly popular, um, particularly in France and then all over Europe and as well as um, in South America. The term um, sometimes uh, is referred to as photo novel in English. Uh, the Italian term is photoromanzo. Uh, in French, roman photo. In uh, Spanish, fotonovela. And I use the term photoromance because this is the word that is used um, in publication that came out in the United States in the 1970s, which were imported narratives uh, from Italy published by a Roman company, Lancio. So this is a type of comics, as I said, um, and so it draws from the tradition, especially of romantic um, drawings and, um, and comics magazine that were published in the late 40s already, in Italy, but also draws from a tradition of film melodrama, especially it's in, in its narratives. They are very frequently romantic stories. Um, that's the, the topic of the content of uh, the photo romance, as the very word photo romance says. Um, and as well as um, the term transmedia, it perfectly applies in this context because not only um, it's a comic a magazine that uses photographs, so um, uh, it uses some of the techniques uh, imported from cinema, um, but also the content um, of these uh, magazines um, went across media platform um, as it features, for example, movie stars or celebrities from the television, as well as um, contain advertisement for um, music records. So it really branched um, the publisher of these magazines were also very um, important one, like Mondadori and Rizzoli in Italy. Um, and in France, uh, there were franchises of Italian publishers or um, local publishers. And they very often had a business connection with other um, industries in other, um, in other media. So really, the, the term transmedia applies to the photo romance at various levels. So at the level of narrative um, and then at the level of uh, the market as well as the level of production. Um, you can say that there was this, these publishers were um, so-called integrated firms. They had branches um, across media platforms. So it's not really a genre. 
um, it's, not, it's not only a medium or only a genre. It's uh, a bit something of everything, some of everything. Well, what I do in the book is I do start from uh, I do start from the photo romance as a type of publication. But what I do is precisely to show that um, the photo romance is not only uh, this historical, you know, um, has this, this existence as a type of magazine, but also it exists as a medium um, as it was used by um, other um, producers, so not only by publisher, but uh, I don't know, in the book, for example, I talk about the way in which the Communist Party or um, the Catholic magazine Familia Cristiana uh, used the photo romance as a medium uh, to convey messages that could be either the spreading of the gospel or uh, convincing women to vote for the Communist Party. Um, so um, I guess one of the um, goal of the book is precisely to show how, um, how broad was um, the success um, of these type of comics so that um, it really became pervasive uh, at the time and throughout the 1970s until the mid-80s um, in Italian society, but also um, internationally because, it's, uh, because of its uh, international success. Yeah, I remember that success very clearly, actually. So, but what inspired you to start your research on photo romance? So, the, actually, the reason why I started to work on it is I was particularly interested in the contrast between the success of the magazines and, uh, at the same time, the very sharp criticism in public opinion um, in the press, as well as the dismissal in scholarship. Um, the existing literature before my book was published is very limited. Um, scholars have dismissed the photo romance generally um, because they are considered, um, not just because, in, in public opinion, because they're considered low culture or, if you want, trash culture. Um, and they are dismissed as, as I said, trite romantic narratives uh, with very little also um, to give in terms of um, their aesthetics because of the fact that they recycle um, techniques from other media. Um, and the same uh, happened in, uh, in scholarship where uh, the existing criticism was basically either um, talking about photoromances as tools of indoctrination or a tool of domination um, of capitalists, of the cultural industries, um, or dismissing them as women's literature. So um, I was interested in precisely in this contrast between, on one hand, the great success and the very limited interest in scholarship and the sharp criticism in the press, which, by the way, was um, addressing not only the photo romance as an industry, but specifically uh, the readers of photo romances, uh, which were, and uh, uh, for for a very long time, particularly women, um, and uh, addressing these women readers of photo romances as naive or even plainly stupid. So from there, um, I decided that I wanted to read these photo romances myself to see what, what was the old, the big deal um, about them. And as I was reading them, I realized that um, there was much more to tell um, about um, this story. And uh, some of the criticism uh, was uh, pinpointing um, what, as I said, is 
um, a peculiar uh, feature of photoromance uh, that is this transmedial aspect. Um, there was a journalist on the Washington Post in the 1970s uh, blaming photoromances uh, for uh, invading the uh, US market with a kind of pulp fiction uh, that could be called a TV soap opera in magazine format. Um, in fact, so this was, of course, an ironic commentary to reduce the importance of um, these imported products, but at the same time was highlighting the fact that you did have on the pages of these uh, magazines um, a, uh, the, the same content that you could have on, in TV. So really pinpointing this kind of working across um, media platform. Um, so as I was, as I, uh, was studying more, then um, I realized that um, the innovations that the Italian publisher had brought to the market in the late 40s and throughout the 50s and 60s um, were really worth um, scholarship attention, scholarly attention. It, this is very interesting because um, just a few days ago, I think two days ago, um, I was reading about uh, a misogynistic tweet storm on a feminist Italian politician, Laura Boldrini, um, in this tweet storm, the deputy director of the Italian newspaper Il Foglio, whose name is Maurizio Crippa, um, very openly insulted a woman who defended Boldrini, the politician, the feminist politician. And he tweeted in Italian, più cretina della media, legga i fotoromanzi, which means um, more idiot than the average. Go read fotoromances. So clearly he meant you are not worth, I don't want you as a reader. You can only read fotoromances since you are stupid. Um, and this is not a new phenomenon, um, not only, you know, in the critic, uh, among the critics or the journalists, but just common people. Um, they have considered the photoromances for a long time as a cheap, liberal commercial product for uneducated women. And you actually say um, very clearly that they were meant um, to be for the little servants, the servette. And um, so the, the photoromances have been mocked uh, for a long time. And you, you, for instance, in your book mentioned uh, Fellini's the, the White Shake, which revolves around a woman who is completely brainwashed uh, by the photoromance industry. And here is when I need to talk about, you know, uh, my guilt and my regret. So full disclosure, uh, when I was young, not only was one of those um, photoromance critics who looked down at the women who who read them, who read them. But I truly believe that photoromances were stupid and absolutely to avoid. So what I found really fascinating in your book is how you first reframe the natural association between the photoromance and women. So like, like female readers. And even more importantly, um, I, I find it really um, very interesting how you problematize this association and provide a feminist reading of the photo romance. So can you elaborate on this association and discuss how you reframe the photo romance in the book? Yeah, um, I would like to start first um, going back to your quote of this um, tweet. Um, I read the same tweet um, and I was intrigued by the fact that the response, um, so uh, the male writer who is talking about um, this woman as a reader of photo romances and therefore someone uh, with very little education 
um, and uh, unable to actually uh, intellectually challenge him, um, the way in which the woman who wrote the tweet uh, before, the, on which uh, the, 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 that was commented by this man, um, she uh, mentioned uh, in her tweet the circus. Um, and uh, comparing those who are involved in, in, in this discussion as people of the circus. So what I found interesting is that both of them, uh, from, let's say, the two different sides of the aisle, um, are both using this association between uh, what is labeled as low culture, so be it the circus or the photo-romans, um, with the intellectual abilities of those who are the users or consumers of this product. So in a sense, they're using very much the same rhetoric, uh, which is the rhetoric that um, precisely there is this association between uh, the low culture and the, and the users of this culture, because there is an assumption that uh, viewers or uh, readers, in this case of photo romances, are either passive uh, receptacles or um, they, they don't have the ability uh, for meaning making, right? For actually negotiating uh, the meaning of what they read. Uh, so this is, I think, the starting point for the for the discussion in general um, about the photo romances and uh, for my book as well. Uh, so on one hand, um, I was very interested in this practice that goes beyond the photo romance um, and which associate generally uh, type of media products that could be melodrama, the photo romance, uh, pulp romances uh, that have at the center. Uh, sentimentality and romantic stories, um, and these are associated with the feminine gender. So there is a long tradition of this association, right? It's not just uh, in the late 40s with the photo romance. It starts way before. Um, and on the other hand, uh, the fact that most of the analysis have started precisely from the perspective of uh, the scholars, right, uh, without taking into consideration um, the readers. Um, in fact, in my book, I, I really found inspiration in a, in a work that was published in the 1980s by Janet Stradway, um, a book about women readers of um, pulp romances, um, in which she really, she does an ethnographic study on these uh, readers. And, and she really talks about the way in which um, scholars um, have, doesn't, do not acknowledge uh, uh, what the practice of readings, of buying, of sharing magazines can do to women. Um, and so beyond the narratives, which may very well be narratives that enforce uh, the patriarchal, uh, heteronormative society in which women live, uh, their narratives are not transgressive, uh, there is something else that goes on here that is uh, other than simple identification, uh, so that you know, women by reading uh, stories that are about their oppression, they are therefore oppressed themselves, right? Um, there is instead something about um, the way in which women can find time for themselves, uh, can talk about themselves um, as they are talking about uh, the stories that they've read with other uh, readers like them. Um, and create uh, a collective identity by means of a reading uh, of a, of, a practice, of, a, of practices of reading and buying and sharing. Um, so this is, I think, where lies uh, the feminist, you know, that's the feminist ground of my work. Um, understanding and, and trying to rewrite the history of the photo romance uh, from the bottom up rather than from the top down. 
That's really interesting. And going back to the tweet, actually, since you you read it too, um, it's also interesting that the reader, the female reader, responded also um, when Maurizio Crippa asked her to go read photo romances. She also responded, "Okay." Uh, mi lancio, which means uh, I will launch myself to read them, but it's a pun because Lancho is uh, one of the most famous uh, publishers of the photo romances. So she was actually, I don't know if she was a reader, but she was definitely a knowledgeable person about photo romances. Um, didn't you find it interesting? Yeah, you know, that, that's very interesting. And, um, you know, in, in my research, I've also, um, I've also tried to do... Um, sort of uh, uh, ethnographic study. Unfortunately, readers of photoromances of the 50s or 60s, um, there, there are no data about um, their responses to the text. But what I did, I studied um, fanship and fandom on social media today. So these mostly are um, today's readers of photoromances who began uh, reading photoromances in the 1970s. And uh, um, my research showed that a large number uh, of these fans um, are, uh, in fact, uh, well-educated, and they uh, also have an understanding, awareness, um, a sort of, we could say, sort of distance, right? So the criticism is very much often about fans, uh, that there is so much proximity and, and there is this kind of irrational bond between uh, the fan and the object of fandom um, that uh, it's impossible for them to think clearly, right? Um, and so... I, I'm not at all surprised. Uh, I would not be surprised that this woman um, was actually, or in the past or today, um, a reader. Um, but there was something else that I wanted to add, um, and you know, that goes back to what you were saying before about this sense of guilt um, that uh, you know either readers may have or uh, that you may have thinking about uh, your past, right? And and in the way in which you were, you remember also uh, considering uh, the readers of photoromances as someone to look down at. Um, what I found in my research is that, um, so there are several things. So on one hand, there is really this uh, sense of shame that very much define um, readers of photoromances. And this sense of shame contrast with in with what instead um, goes on on the pages of the magazines where fandom is very much nurtured and nurtured really in a sense of creating a community um, of fans who are supportive of each other and understand um, and understand their position um, and their taste right um, another thing that I um, found out is um, about, the connection between this sense of shame and um, the development of uh, Italian society at the time, which is very much happening also throughout Europe and I would say throughout um, Western um, societies, uh, there is a, a, a relationship between social status and uh, uh, habits of cultural consumption. And, and therefore, reading photo romances really becomes something that you would be ashamed of because it says something about your place in society. And therefore, for example, the association between them and the lower classes and the popular classes. So to a certain extent, then, um, the, uh, the rejection of these media production has to do 
um, with a rejection of what they represent um, in terms of social status. And instead, the acceptance of it or the desire to read them may also be seen as a way to precisely go against uh, for example, in the case of young readership in the 1970s, is really a, a generational conflict um, in, the, in the, a conflict of, uh, uh, between uh, social classes, right? So you would have a large amount of readership from the middle class, young women from the middle class uh, who were uh, consciously, uh, you know, define their parents and, and their middle class mentality by reading uh, these kind of prohibited um, narratives that were considered for being for the lower classes. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Right. And um, it, it's also interesting that you say that the, the actual reader of the 50s uh, are not here anymore to talk about what they did and what they thought and, you know, the, the pleasure or guilt or shame of the reading. But but there are still some readers from the 70s maybe that you interviewed or I don't know. I want to know more about that through Facebook and social media in general. So, um, first of all, I would like to know how you approach them and which kind of method you use to interview them. Um, and uh, how large is this community today? To what extent do you think is representative of past readers? Yeah, so I really want to respond to your question, but I do have to go back uh, to take a step back here um, because um, it is fair to say that it would be hard now to interview, and, and in my research, um, most of the people responded to my um, surveys were readers of uh, who began in the 1970s. Um, however, um, it, is, it is very different, of course, to talk about memory, right? And to instead um, try to study the readership of the time, right? So it's really also in, in kind of a historical question. So the way that in the book I address um, the readership at the time is by looking at the magazines and looking at those um, aspects of the magazine that could be editorial strategies, that could be um, uh, letter writing, uh, so all, in, in, which also includes um, the narrative themselves as very often photoromances represented fans themselves, right? So through the study of the text themselves in their context and through the studies of the practices of production and distribution, uh, understand what was the readership at the time 
and how did the readership contributed to the industry in an active way, uh, in such active way that we can um, precisely see readers as producers of meaning and not just um, a receptacle of some form of indoctrination um, by means of these narratives. Um, instead, as you said, um, uh, part of my book is also um, focused on what we can call a, a, an ethnography, that is an ethnographic study uh, that happens online for the most part. Um, so I created a survey that I distributed through social media. Um, I did research on uh, Facebook groups um, that are currently active, uh, Facebook groups of uh, fans of uh, photoromances, particularly fans of these um, Roman publisher and series of the, by this Roman publisher, Lancho. Um, I became uh, a member of these groups and I began to have a relationship with the members, conversations about their culture. So on one hand, I um, collected data by means of anonymous survey. And on the other hand, I collected particularly qualitative data um, by means of conversation um, with these readers and fans um, in order to understand how today uh, photoromance fandom um, is uh, developed and happens. Um, and what I found is precisely, as I said, on one hand, um, the memory of uh, this readership of the 1970s is one that has a lot to do with the generational conflict at the time, um, which is not political um, in, the, in the sense that it does not uh, take into consideration of what was happening in those years. So the 70s is a time of great uh, radical movement and feminism and um, and even terrorism. So none of that is in the memory of the readers. But um, the way in which they are political is by and, and and specifically I'm talking about women here because most of my respondents are women or identify as women. Um, of course, the anonymity of the web uh, also help them create their own identity more creatively. If you will, if you want. Um, they um, really have a memory uh, of uh, becoming fans uh, because of a, a desire to, of course, um, be part um, of a community, um, but also uh, challenging their middle class um, parents at the same time. Yeah, the more you speak, uh, the more I also think about um, uh, parallel field of research I'm, I'm exploring at this time, which is the um, B-movies uh, like the Decamerotici in, uh, in the 60, late 60s and 70s. And I actually, in some focus groups that I organized, I caught this idea of shame um, among people who were trying to hide behind the idea that, you know, they didn't belong to that community that was um, watching those films because uh, it was from, you know, there were people from a different social class, basically. Uh, but then everybody, uh, and I'm talking about the, about the male audiences, actually, everybody had watched them. So it would be really interesting uh, to, you know, to compare this kind of these two lines of research um, from this perspective. But what I find really innovative in your 
in your book is um, how you change the critical perspective on the photo romance by expanding the analysis, as you already said, from genre to a complex medium, because in the book you go far beyond the analysis of the narrative and aesthetic features of the photo romance. You go you go completely beyond the canonical analysis. Um, you analyze elements such as the transmedialization, you, ho- you have already mentioned that, um, but also the reader's tastes and participation, their consumerism, the, the fandom um, element, the editorial and production strategies. So in this complexity, um, it is this complexity that allows you to show how the photo romance is in line with the gender discourses uh, developed in Western European democracies, particularly with post-feminism. Um, so th- that's something. It, it looks like that, you know, the photo romance, from your perspective, becomes um, a sort of a precursor of modern um, products. And... Um, it's a sort. You analyze it as a sort of transmedia feminist, uh, from a sort of transmedia feminist historical perspective. So, um, can you talk about uh, this, this kind of um, reconciliation of feminism and post-feminism through photo romances in your book? Yeah, and um, in a way, I can kind of again go back to what you were saying right now about this um, subgenre of the uh, sexy comedies of the 70s. Um, as a matter of fact, the case of the photo romance is very different because the photo romance is very much uh, a, ch- a child of its time. Uh, so it's not marginal at all. Um, so we're talking about magazines that were sold uh, millions of copies per week um, and about magazines that were really grounded in the culture of consumerism uh, which was the culture of the time that target for the most, uh, for the target especially um, a female audience. So in that sense, uh, the photo romance is really uh, the perfect lens through which to study um, how consumerist culture developed um, in Italy and then throughout, in, as well as throughout Europe um, in the post-war period. Um, so, um, so, so speaking from this point of view, then. Um, the relationship between the success of the photo romance and the growing importance of women as consumers at the time um, is crucial, right? So um, as I like to say in the book, uh, quoting Simone de Beauvoir, uh, the photo romance was not born a woman's magazine. It became one. And it became one because at the time, publishers understood that to specialize uh, was a perfect strategy in order to uh, monetize precisely on the growing liberties that women had at the time, particularly in purchasing power. So the economic independence that women were experiencing in Italy as well. And so surprisingly enough, for example, um, a, a DOXA, so a, a statistics of the time showed that 90% of readers of these magazines published by, Bolero, by Mondadori, Bolero Film, were women. Uh, and these women did not consider themselves the head of the household. Um, however, they were the one buying photo romances. They were the one making the purchase, right? Which uh, which tells, uh, and they were the one that, that even though they belong to the low to the low middle class, um, they had, according to these statistics, um, a great um, uh, great chance to uh, grow economically, right? To climb the social ladder. So. 
um, the readers then uh, of these magazines uh, were uh, women whose growing independence in the economy uh, went hand in hand with their emancipation in society and with especially um, what then in the late 60s will become more prominently the process of sexual liberation. So reading the uh, so to go back you know to this idea of shame uh, this idea of shame is really a, con- a social construction it's actually a, a construction uh, by the end of a male centered heteronormative uh, uh, culture uh, elite culture of the time because if you read the magazine you realize that the model of femininity represented there are very much not traditional they're very much uh, really uh, again uh, emblematic of the time and very often you have young girls uh, who uh, work um, they have extramarital relationship so from the point of view especially of sexuality um, what this magazine conveyed to their female readers uh, were models that did not match uh, with the uh, traditional and, and patriarchal society that uh, both political and cultural elite wanted to maintain. So in this way, they were very much transgressive. And at the same time, um, I use the term post-feminist um, because they were filled with contradictions. And these contradictions were, um, uh, they originated uh, because of the fact that on one hand, uh, both the magazines in general, so we're talking also about advertisement for beauty products, uh, we're talking about uh, columns that talked about uh, advice, column advice, they talked about sentimental relationship uh, together with the content of the narratives of the phototextual narratives of the photo romances. Um, they uh, presented a model of woman that was uh, sexually liberated and at the same time, a model of woman that aspired um, at the ideal of marriage and uh, love. So this kind of contradiction, um, a scholar in cultural studies, Angela McRobbie, talks about the double entanglement. So um, this peculiar to the model of femininity that is born out of consumer culture in the, 19, in the late 40s and 50s, and that is very common and predominant throughout uh, Western Europe. Uh, and so the photo romance in Italy um, really is, is a very good way to understand how, even though uh, McCrobby talks about post-feminism, um, it is in fact a model that originates way before the radical movements of the 1970s. Another scholar, Hilary Radner, talks about in fact something uh, she, she calls it neo-feminism. And because she wants to draw the attention to the fact that it's a type of uh, women's emancipation that goes side by side um, and actually uh, before um, that uh, that was uh, promoted by um, radical feminism later in the 1970s. That's fascinating. And going back to the, um, you know, my, my disclosure, uh, we, we've been talking about shame, but I also mentioned regret. Um, regret of not being aware of how the photo romances were transgressive actually because i i never i i really never got in close touch in close vicinity uh so this is this is the problem and uh, so for this reason i really loved your chapter on the cold war photo romances um First of all, because it has a wonderful visual apparatus, especially that section. Um, I enjoyed it, uh, really uh, looking at it very much. But um, but it was, you know, I, 
it was not only entertaining because this chapter is about the struggle, and I'm quoting you, the struggle for women's minds and how photo romances could be used for educational, political, and edifying goals from many different directions, I mean, contradictory directions. Um, So to me, it was really phenomenal to see the Catholic and communist photo romances vis-a-vis, and uh, even the birth control campaign as a photo romance. It it was amazing. Um, Can you talk about the channels of distribution of these specific photo romances? How successful were they? How diffused were they? Um, yes. So um, these are very good examples of um, productions that were sponsored by political, religious agencies. Um, the one you mentioned was sponsored by the birth control movement um, in Italy to promote the use of the contraception pill. Um, so they used the medium of the photoromance, so this type Uh, of um, means of communication because they wanted to target, first of all, the same target audience of photoromance, that is women, um, because they wanted to use uh, photographs as a way to attract the readers and um, and also, of course, the um, easy kind of reading, right? Uh, the, The limited amount of reading combined with the photograph. So in terms of, um, so in general, they wanted to use Um, the same techniques because these techniques have been proven successful um, with the same target audience. Um, As a matter of fact, other uh, agencies also outside of Italy understood um, that the popularity of uh, photoromances was uh, to be exploited. So in the book, I also talk about the Peace Corps, for example, used um, photo novels to educate um, Ecuadorian uh, peasants um, on how to uh, to create uh, to to, uh, to grow uh, plants uh, in Ecuador. So um, that's so that that is to say that um, basically what happens is that um, these different agencies understand that a way to reach uh, the audience would be to use the same tools that until yesterday they criticized very much, right? But using them in a different way. Uh, what happens is then when you uh, look at these uses of the photoromances, you realize that precisely what I said before, their success is not just due to the techniques. Uh, this success is due to the fact that they are embedded um, in the culture of consumerism of the time. And so when you take them out of that context, uh, the success um, it, it doesn't happen, right? Um, it doesn't have the same kind of effect. Um, and the very good case is precisely uh, the photoromances made by the Communist Party, right? Um, and, and specifically, for example, because of the fact that they don't use um, celebrities, they don't use movie stars the same way in which Olero film would use, right? Attracting readers because these readers were familiar with other media, with the cinema, with television, and they wanted to continue enjoying um, the same stories, the same narrative world, and the same characters also on the pages of the magazine, and then vice versa, right? So what I mentioned before, the kind of connection between the magazines and other media, it's really what made them successful. And and without that, uh, you wouldn't have the same effects. 
Yeah, and uh, the, the the proximity to other media like uh, film goes back to the beginning, actually, because I read with again with surprise uh, that uh, Cesare Zavattini, one of the sacred names of neorealism, who worked with Vittorio De Sica, the director of Bicycle Thieves, and so many films, um, among those in some way involved in the photo romances industry. So, but but you point out that actually. Um, he had a sort of a peculiar, you, you call it ambiguous position in this industry. Can you explain that? Yeah, his position is very typical of leftist um, intellectual at the time, uh, meaning that on one hand, uh, Zavattini was involved, for example, in the making of a photo romance that was published by Mondador in 1962. The title was The Guilt, um, La Colpa, and it was about this woman who happened uh, to be pregnant before marriage. Uh, so he was involved uh, as, as, a, as a maker of photo romances. Um, he was interviewed several times in like documentary films, talking about them, but always with this attitude um, of a pedagogical mission. That was very common. And before I mentioned that in the public opinion and in the press, uh, there were critics of photo romance as a tools of indoctrination or uh, stultifying um, tools, but also there was this kind of condescendence. And Zavattini was one of those, one, one of those who would say, you know, uh, photo romances are good as long as intellectuals can use them uh, to educate um, the readers. So again, with this kind of understanding of an audience that um, needs to be educated from the top down um, and that is otherwise stultified right, by the, by the messages of the cultural industries. Yeah, and uh, continuing to talk about this uh, um, proximity with uh, the film industry, you also uh, discuss another aspect, actually you historicize it, um, the relationship between uh, photo romances and stardom. Uh, the stars, the celebrities. Um, so, who are the stars of the photo romances? Yeah, the relationship with cinema, is, with cinema, sorry, um, is really fascinating and is at the various levels. So, in the book, I talk about this particular kind of photo romance that is called cine romance or cine romance. Um, these are a kind of photo romances that adapt or uh, translate, let's see, let's say, films on on the pages. So you would have photo romances uh, based on a variety of films from, of course, the film melodrama of the time, but also um, films by author of the period. You would have a photo romance of Antonioni's La Ventura or photo romance of the Sica's uh, Terminal Station. So here there is a really direct connection. And these magazines are very much targeting both movie lovers, um, movie fans, and uh, those who could not, for example, go to the movie theater but wanted to watch their favorite movie star um, on page, right? Um, so in a way, movie stars are uh, really, they, they migrate from cinema to the pages of photo romances. Um, they were also hired as actors instead in photo romances that were original stories, that were not adaptation of films. Um, and by the way, the cine romances really use film stills um, and, and uh, uh, screenshots from the movie. And then uh, the page was recomposing the story um, for the readers. Um, or they were hired um, as actors. And some of them actually, uh, like Gina Lollobrigida or Sophia Lauren, 
uh, they were first actress in uh, photoromances before they became um, movie stars. Um, and then in the 1970s, instead, uh, you have a very different phenomenon with this series by the Roman company Lancio, where you have what we can call in-house celebrities. So uh, differently from the 50s and the 60s, um, when uh, really readers of photoromances were also movie fans or TV viewers, and so they wanted to enjoy um, their characters uh, from the small screen to the big screen and vice versa, in the 70s, um, the type of fandom that Lancho generated was one that really was attached to the actors and actresses that were made popular by um, the publisher themselves. So the famous name was Franco Gaspari, uh, who was really a, a star and someone who then tried to uh, also become an actor in movies, but was very much known uh, because as an actor of uh, in uh, photo romances and this kind of attachment uh, to these um, celebrities um, is uh, again typical uh, of other media like um, soap operas. Right, you have this same kind of relationship with um, with figure that otherwise are not known, right? If I say Franco Gaspari, most people will not know who he is, right? But if you are a fan of photoromances, you very well know who he is, and most likely you are one of his greatest fans. It's uh, really interesting that actually you mentioned the screenshots used uh, from screenshots from the films used for uh, new photo romances, because today that would be a violation of the copyright. Right, uh, and actually, you discuss that in the book. You're you're talking about the pirates, uh, photo romances as the pirates of, of film industry because they recycled uh, the the film narratives and titles as they wished. Um, and so, in the book, you also do a quite thorough analysis of uh, Senso, a photo romance inspired by director Lucino Visconti's uh, eponymous film Senso. So, can you talk about this relationship and what about the copyright? I mean, what happened? Uh, how was this issue managed? Yeah, um, this is a very fascinating topic. And um, it's actually a question that a lot of people have asked me. And then therefore, I, I, I looked into it precisely because everyone was public, everyone I was talking to uh, mentioning the fact that the film like Senso would have a printed version that used exactly the same screenshot from the film, but rewrote the story because uh, it's important to say that the story that the photo romance tell is not quite the same as the story that the film tells. Um, so most people would really be puzzled how, how come, how did that happen? And clearly, directors had no idea, film stars had no idea that their films were turned into photo romances. And because of the association between photo romance and low culture, I wonder what, if, whether they were, would be happy uh, knowing that, that that happened. So the reason lies in the copyright laws of the time. And so what I do in the book is I investigate how the photo romance was not part of the copyright law and therefore was not really persecuted for doing something like adapting uh, Antonioni's La Notte into a photo romance. Um, in particularly, film stars at the time had no rights over their images. In directors, most likely, they just gave up their rights um, to producer at the time. So if a producer agreed with a publisher, in the case, for example, of the, um, of the Cine Romance series, 
um, that was owned by Dino De Laurenti, who was also a film producer, it was very easy for the producer to, to give, you know, the right to, to the publisher, especially when the publisher was owned by himself, um, to make these products. Um, so uh, this is also something that says a lot. So it goes beyond, uh, let's say, the photoromas to understand um, uh, what was happening uh, with regard to the so-called, uh, uh, you know, author of the time and how much uh, was really their pow- the power that they had over their films. Um, so the, the cineromas was outside of the copyright laws and that allowed, therefore, um, this kind of practices that I called um, pirating, right? Um, and so what happens, though, the positive aspect of it, which is also an aspect that we can connect again to this idea of convergence culture, is the fact that it allowed then, um, especially small publishers, like those who were really at the margins of, uh, of the publishing market, um, to... Uh, it, 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 kind of freedom that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, And so a film like Senso was adapted um, for the printed page in a way they really changed uh, the um, narrative from the original one and changed it, adapting it to the taste of its readers. Um, So very often, for example, um, films were turned into uh, sentimental stories. So there is a a cine romance based on Antonioni's Il Grido. Uh, and if you have ever seen the film, you would not, and if you have never seen Antonioni's film, you wouldn't think it's uh, necessarily a melodrama, right? But the way in which it would be adapted uh, for as a photo romance would be to focus then on the love stories of the main protagonist, sometimes really changing um, the core meaning um, of the film. And in the case of Senso, also it showed how uh, because of the liberties that this publisher had, uh, they could um, show, they could talk about topics that may have been censored um, if they were a film. Um, and so they uh, escaped. At the time, there was a very strict film commission that was examining film in, in order to give permission um, to be released. And this kind of commission, of course, would not uh, pay attention uh, to senior romances. And therefore, um, if we think about, again, these magazines relation to their uh, female readers and in the way in which they could present model of conducts, um, they could, again, they could, there could be space there uh, for presenting model of conducts that were not necessarily those that um, the censorship commission uh, would have accepted as, um, as you know, would, would have deemed as acceptable. That's so interesting. Uh, it couldn't happen today, I guess, but uh, it was amazing as a as a cultural phenomenon. Um, so I still have a sort of maybe a final question because while listening to you and reading the book and going back to my young years, um, I was trying to grapple with the, the the this contradiction of seeing the photo romances. As um, as instrumental to educate women um, on you know either side of the spectrum, um, and and also they they proposed gender and sexual models. So therefore, uh, they were at least in some in some uh, um, parts of the production maybe instrumental to the patriarchal culture hierarchies. On the other hand, uh, the audiences were exposed to uh, and could interact with the female desire and sexuality, um, this kind of transgressive ideas of the birth control or um, extramarital 
um, relationships of kind of liberated women. Um, so at, at least some of the production was very progressive. And so we could consider the photo romances also as uh, safe spaces, especially for female audiences. So how how what could you say just to reconcile again this uh, this uh, um, contradiction, or maybe how would you frame this spectrum um, of, of instances of productions of uh, ideas? Well, you know, I would say that um, precisely the whole point of the book is to bring up these contradictions. And so the goal is really not to reconcile them as much as to dismantle a univocal way of looking at photo romances. So as I said, the main critique were very uh, a one-way, you know, a one-way criticism. Uh, these are just stupid magazines. Let's trash them, right? Um, so the point is to bring up these contradictions and understand the way in which, because of them, uh, there could be nuances in our readings and there could be also, you know, uh, multiple ways of interpretation from the point of view of readers. So as I described before, um, this kind of uh, coexistence on one end of conservative gender roles and on the other hand, uh, a representation of sexuality that is liberated, um, it's very typical um, of the time and it's very typical also today um, of contemporary uh, rom-coms or uh, other so-called girly films or women's films. Um, and it is typical of a, uh, of a gender discourse and a discourse of sexuality that we call today post-feminist, as I said before. Um, so in a sense, um, I precisely uh, resist uh, the uh, idea that we have to reconcile them or that their existence um, is somehow a sign that, that we're not reading them right. Mm-hmm. Um, but rather, precisely that, um, this, this is the reading that allows us to understand uh, better what the magazine have to say about the culture and society um, that, uh, you know, that um, is of in Italy and throughout Europe um, in the post-war period and, and understand the role um, that uh, individuals have uh, within this context. Yeah, and also how they contributed to um, the, the, the creation of this, of this culture, to this culture in general in, um, in those years, I guess. Um, would you like to add anything that we didn't discuss about your book? Oh, I think we we have discussed so thoroughly. Well, if I want if I want to add something, is uh, uh, that definitely uh, you know the book has um, the book is is structured so that to touch upon uh, various questions and uh, the focus is um, as I said the photoromances these magazines, but really um, someone who has an interest in cinema, who has an interest in television, who has an interest in digital media um, could find. Um, something worth um, reading. So um, 
And I really hope, you know, uh, my hope is that, uh, you know, it would be uh, it would be too much to think that one book is enough. Um, uh, nobody would ever dare to write a book titled The Cinema Today, right? Um, so I did title mine The Photo Romance because there is really not much uh, written about it. But my hope is that it would serve as a starting point for um, many more uh, discussion and many more rewriting of the same story by other um, scholars. Yeah, we really hope so. Uh, Paola, thank you very much for this um, amazing and interesting uh, conversation and also especially for your book. It, it's really a great reading. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was fun. <laughs> yeah, it was. Bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.